Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. And I don't know where you were, what you were doing on 9-11, but I do remember it being a dramatic event living in South Florida uh, where many of the terrorists were from and had trained and all the sorts of things that happened there, that there was a real sense of fear and grief and mourning and, and anxiety. And I remember being a young father, my, my daughter, who's I'm going to meet in a few minutes for lunch, is 20 years old, and I remember holding her on that night, four months she had been on this earth, and I wondered as a dad and prayed as a dad, God, what kind of world is my daughter going to be living in? And you, you know, the, the lostness of, of mankind, the starkness of sin, and the, the overwhelming sense of evil in the world that, that oftentimes we face and are become fearful about. All of that was flooding my heart, and I remember sitting in the rocking chair in her room, holding her, rocking her to sleep at night, just asking for good things spiritually in her life and for God to be faithful to her. And probably every one of us could tell stories like that, uh, whether it's fear or faith or anxiety or anticipation or uncertainty or confidence in God, all on those continuums, we were feeling pulled and pushed and all the sorts of things that we were experiencing. But here's what we know should be true, that we should remember as God's people. We should remember several things. One, that God is upon his throne and that we should never doubt the security and the stability of our father seated upon the throne. We never doubt that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. We never doubt that the church is, is working through uh, difficult times, sharing the gospel and that the spirit of God is empowering us. We never forget that the word of God is true and real. We never forget the sinful struggle that mankind is involved in and we never forget how God is working through that struggle to offer the message of salvation to others. And so today we do remember, and I want us to join our hearts in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, with all of these thoughts and probably many more in our minds today, we step back and, and remember. And just as the scripture teaches us, Lord, we remember with a spiritual orientation a spiritual orientation to have our eyes upon you and to declare and have confidence that you are God, you are good, you are great, you are powerful, you are able to deal with mankind and all of its sinful struggle. Lord, we also can declare that we are to look circumspectly around, that there is truth and you teach us knowledge and there is wisdom that is on display from heaven and from scripture and from believers who are walking in Christ's likeness and that as Christians, we are to walk circumspectly. We are to look clearly and see perceptively at the world we live through the lens of the gospel with a Christian perspective on all things. Lord, we also know that as the family of God that we are a community of support and a community where we practice our faith. We know that as a community of faith that we are commanded to pray for our leaders that are over us. And today we do that. We pray for our president and vice president, for senators and representatives, for justices, for our military leaders and governors and local municipality leaders and state leaders and our judges here in our own community. And we lift them up to you knowing that righteousness exalts a nation and blessed is the nation whose Lord is their God. And, and we pray, God, that you would make yourself known to them, that you would be at work through them, that you would hold the, the king's heart 
in your hand and channel it where you desire. And, and God, we pray that you would direct each of these that we've mentioned by role and title, uh, directing them and, and helping us to be a blessed and righteous nation. Lord, that when we are not and when we don't behave righteously, that, that your grace would be patient with us and that you would redirect our hearts and that you would guide us in righteousness. And Lord, for us as a church ministry, we pray that as we practice our faith and live our lives, that here we would cheer one another on as we run the race that is set before each one of us. God, now as we open your word, we pray that this again would be one of those days where we hear and receive the word of God. We know that the Bible warns us to not hear the word of God and walk away and forget what it says or what we're to look like. But instead, the Bible teaches us to hear and receive the word of God humbly as it is planted within us. So from the foolishness of preaching, Lord, may you do your work to build the body of believers and to build us up in the faith. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And the church said, amen. Um, Years ago, I was asked to dedicate a hospital that was coming to our community. It was a rather rather well-known hospital, the Cleveland Clinic. They were opening a clinic in our community in South Florida, and I was asked to come as the pastor of the local church to kind of give an invocation. And I I said to the lady that invited me, her name was Joyce, I said, now Joyce, understand that um, if I'm asked to give an invocation, I'm a Christian pastor, so I'm going to pray in Jesus' name. And, and I just want you to know that ahead of time. Now, uh, South Florida at the time, and certainly still today, was not what you would call a bastion of evangelical Christianity. It was less than 1% ev- evangelical Christian. So uh, think many Muslim countries were more evangelical Christian by way of the percentage of the population than that community was. And that's right here in our own United States. And uh, she said, I understand, Pastor, and certainly no constraints on you whatsoever. Now, remember, this is 20 plus years ago when this happened. So I go in and there are all sorts of dignitaries from the hospital and from the community and senators and governors and all these sorts of things. And we're gathered in the big auditorium there in the hospital and just this beautiful place and wonderful day. And the the service had been going on with all the people speaking and all the people giving their congratulations. And then I come up to give the final prayer and and the benediction. And as I come up to pray, I certainly add my uh, congratulations and I could tell the room was enthusiastic. And then I prayed, and as I prayed, I closed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There was an audible gasp in the room. People with their heads bowed and their eyes closed, looked up wide-eyed and could not believe that I mentioned the name of Jesus. The Bible teaches that there's no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved and there's no other name in which we can pray and there's only one name in which Christians do pray but I could tell for 95% of that population I was certainly the most offensive person in the room because I mentioned Jesus You know, that's really where we come with the passage of Scripture that we look at today, beginning in Acts chapter 3, verse 11, going through verse 26. We'll look at it in a minute. It builds on Pastor Craig's message from last week. If you weren't here, it's important that you are here week by week to hear 
the Word of God to be edified, to be built up. But let me just give you a quick picture back of last week's message in case you weren't there. The, the idea is that Peter and John were going into the temple to worship, to go about their regular activities of spiritual leadership and teaching and worshiping and fellowshipping with the other Christians there in Jerusalem. And as he goes in, he sees a man that he often had seen before, that everybody in Jerusalem evidently knew because he was not just a beggar, he was the beggar. He wasn't just anywhere, he was at the temple gate. And as he was there, he was oftentimes begging for alms. Peter looked at him and Peter and John are standing there as they come in and Peter pauses and catches the attention of this man. Their eyes obviously lock up and Peter looks at him and says, silver and gold, I have none, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Now this was a lifelong lame man who was never able to walk, who was well known in Jerusalem. And now he gets up with the strength not of Peter's hand, but the strength of Jesus in his legs. And a miracle has been done as Peter and John demonstrate individual compassion for an individual person, but also not just helping them economically because the church's primary goal isn't an economic goal. The gospel is not primarily an economic goal. The gospel is a spiritual reality of the transformation in people's hearts and lives that has impact in every category of a person's life. Once the issue of spiritual sin has been dealt with, and salvation has come, and that's what occurs in that man's life. But the people of Jerusalem misunderstand it. They don't know what to do with this miracle that has occurred. They don't know what to do with this man, and they don't know what to do with these men who have performed or been used by God to perform that miracle. Here is their story. Pick up with me in verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. So Solomon's portico, one of the most famous places in the ancient temple. And they come running because there's unbelievable enthusiasm, unbelievable excitement, and perhaps concern, how is it that this man can walk? And when Peter saw all this that was going on, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power of piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, he says the word. He claims the name above which there is no other name, the name of Jesus. He speaks the name of Jesus, whom you delivered over, whom you denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled." Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. He speaks his name again. Jesus, whom 
heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. He mentions two prophets, Moses in verse 22, Samuel in verse 24. In verse 22, he says, Moses said, the Lord will rise up for you or raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. One of the most ancient promises of all Israel is now being proclaimed as fulfilled. And he says in verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That's quite a passage of scripture. The second sermon that Peter preaches, and here is the theme, Jesus. You know, you never go wrong with Jesus. The the idea is that Jesus is the focus of the early church. Jesus is the focus of the gospel. Jesus was the focus of Peter and John in performing the miracle, and Peter made sure that in all of the considerations that could have been made as to why this man was healed, that he pointed people to Jesus. And the Bible teaches us that every one of us should deflect any praise, any honor, any glory to ourselves and give it to Jesus, that, that Jesus should be the object and the focus of our affection. Now in this sermon, I think Peter answers the primary questions that people had in that day and time. And as always when preaching, we should simply let the text speak to us. And to let the text speak today uh, would require us to say, okay, what questions were the people asking about this great miracle? And um, What answers did Peter give? And I think there are three primary questions when you look at the breakdown of what Peter was preaching. And remember, this is a summary, most likely. This is probably not every single word that Peter preached, but it's probably his notes, if you will, when Luke was going back and spending some time researching, like he said that he had done, uh, the, the early church and speaking with Jesus' mother Mary and speaking with the apostles and interviewing people. It, he got from Peter the content of what the, the message really was. And here it is recorded for us. And really three questions must have been what Peter said that he was trying to answer when he was speaking to this crowd about this great moment of gospel proclamation. And the the first and obvious question that is spoken to most in this passage is this question, who is Jesus? And and I think there's a summary given here because there are seven statements. And if you know numerology in the Bible, that's simply the study of numbers. The idea is that seven is a number of completion. Like there's seven churches that are spoken about in the, the, the book of Revelation. And it's speaking about the complete picture of the churches. And so the number seven becomes very important. And it's almost as if Peter said, I was trying to make seven primary points with them to help them understand who Jesus is. And in very Hebraic fashion, the, the first point is the same as the last point. Did you see that on the screen up there? It's not just by mistake there twice. This is a Hebraic sermon. 
and they were known to preach what was called circular sermons so that they started somewhere but they finished back at that very place. Now let's just take a peek at what each of these is and some of the verse, verses that speak to the points that Peter was making. First of all, he was saying that Jesus is the covenant-making God. Make no mistake, verse 13, that this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's work. He is the God of our fathers. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is God, and Jesus is the God of our fathers. He is the covenant-making God. And, and it's almost like Peter was tracing out the history and story of all the activity that God had done over the years and decades, generations, centuries, and even millennia. I remember years ago um, meeting when I was just 10 years old, a man by the name of W.A. Criswell, Wally Amos Criswell, one of the most famous Baptist pastors in Baptist history now today, served 52 years at First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. And I was reading scripture one day and he kind of patted me on the head and uh, was a part of our church celebration, preaching for our church family. And, and uh, he kind of blessed me. Later, I got to work on his staff at his church, and one of his most famous, if not his most famous sermon is a sermon entitled, The Scarlet Thread Through the Bible. You may want to look it up at some point, listen to it or read it. And the idea is he traces the hand of God through every book of the Bible, through all the millennia, to show this is who God is, this is how God has worked, and the capstone, the apex, the zenith, the most important moment is Jesus. And that's where Peter starts and stops in this sermon. He says, this is the covenant-making God from the God of the Exodus, the God of Mount Sinai, the God of the Jordan crossing, the garden of the captivity and the restoration of Jerusalem. This is the God who has made all covenants with people. He is the one that has died and risen again, and it's in his name that this miracle has been done. Notice the second thing that he identifies in verse 13, the second part, that he's the suffering servant. Verse 18 makes this clear that his servant, the Christ, would suffer. It's a clear allusion to Isaiah chapter 53, where it talks about Jesus being pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity. His chastisement brought peace to us all. By his wounds we are healed. In other words, he's painting this picture of this covenant God who's entered into this world and paid the price for sin. This is who this Jesus is. And by the way, verse 14 echoes that he is the holy one and the righteous one, language that would have just echoed in Solomon's courtyard in the Temple Mount as there were rabbis and priests and Levites all listening into this. They would have heard that and heard the code language of the one who is set apart, the one who is innocent. That's what the word righteous means, that he was holy, that he was righteous. And, and number four, that he was the author of life. He was, he was the one who fulfilled everything that the book of Hebrews spoke about, he fulfilled. It was everything that they were about in the Temple Mount area. It was about Moses, about Abraham, about Isaac, about Jacob. It, it was about the law. It was about the covenant. It was about the promise. It was all about the one. And Jesus, just as Hebrews would later come back and say, was greater than all of that. He was not on the stair steps climbing to the top, but he had ascended to the very top. 
He was the one that it was all about. And then he makes a fifth point in his sermon, and you can dive deeply into this. As a matter of fact, if you took one point for each day this next week, it would make a great devotional guide for you just to read on Monday point one and Tuesday point two and Wednesday point three and so forth. By the time you'd get to Friday of this next week, you would see that Jesus is the one who saves. There's no other name given to us by which men must be saved. And this was the announcement at his birth to his mother and his father. You shall call him Jesus, Yeshua, the one who saves. Our God saves. It is the declaration of salvation. And, and just as this man has been raised to walk, physical infirmity wasn't his primary problem. Sin was his primary problem. Just like economic in disparity was not his primary problem. Sin was the primary problem. It always is. And then from that primary problem, those spiritual issues, come all the other challenges that we face in life brokenness, meaninglessness, helplessness, hopelessness. It all, the Bible says, comes from sin. And Jesus is the one that saves. And we'll see in a moment what the impact of that salvation is because it ripples through all the effects. But if you go after the effects first and don't get the source issue right, the issue of sin and salvation, you will make mistakes in your application of all the other issues. Peter's very clear in his sermon. Jesus is very pointed in his life. Sin is our issue. Jesus is the one who saves. But not only that, but number six, he is the appointed prophet. He's the one we were waiting for. He's the final prophet. Two prophets spoken of here, maybe two of the greatest prophets, maybe the two greatest prophets, Moses and Samuel. Moses, the lawgiver, who is raised up as a prophet like none others, who was listened to more than any other, certainly in the synagogues, he was read more often than anyone else. And then Samuel, who spoke about the kingdom as he established the kingdom of, of God through David, eventually the line of Jesus, the law and the kingdom spoken of both coming through this person, Jesus. And then that brings us full circle back to verses 24 and 25, where we now see again that God is a covenant-making God. And what he's pointing to here, of course, is what Jesus spoke about in the upper room. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Here, Peter would speak of it this way in verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with our fathers saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all families of the world be blessed. He's saying Jesus not only brings salvation, but Jesus brings full circle this blessing that God offers. This is who Jesus is. But it's not the end of his sermon. He's got so much more. As a matter of fact, it's commingled so beautifully together, it's almost poetic in the way that it reads. But the second question that he deals with is not just who is Jesus, question number one, but what does Jesus do? And he makes very clear as he mingles together his sermon and his ideas in a very Hebraic preaching type of way that Jesus does these things. Number one, that Jesus forgives sins. And, and he does it so beautifully. Again, uh, it's almost like he's artistic. And it's perfect for our teachers today because teachers historically have used chalkboards. Remember the, the chalk on the boards? I mean, just saying chalk on the board, I hear that screeching sound and it makes my skin crawl just a little bit. But our kids are all back in classrooms and I know they've got smart boards and white boards and everything else. But however it is, the Bible uses this language for forgiveness that it 
wipes it away. It, it, it's blotted out is the version of the Bible that I use. The original language is this idea that, that it was on the board, it was seen by all, but then it was erased, it was taken away, it can be seen no more. And he's saying that's what Jesus does. Jesus forgives sin. You see, all the sins that you've committed that we could put on a board, all the sins that I've committed that we could put on a board today, the Bible says that Jesus has the power and the power alone to wipe them all away to make them as if they have never happened before. And and not only that, does he take the guilt away, but he inserts something better. You know, the Bible says that as the demons were cast out, if something's not placed in, more demons will enter in. And that's what Jesus does, is he not only pulls away the sin and the evil, But notice the phrase, verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So not only does he take the sin away, but he deposits spiritual blessings. This is Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have all these spiritual blessings. And then for 14 verses, he goes on and unpacks them. And he says, when you're saved, that's what's deposited in you. All the hope, all the joy, all the meaning, all the purpose All of that's given to you so that you don't have to be afraid when you die. You don't have to fear living your life and missing out. You don't have to be afraid of of what could have been or should have been. No, no, no. The spiritual blessings, times of refreshing come from the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 34 called these the showers of blessing. It's like on a hot August day in Georgia when there's been no rain for weeks and the earth is cracking and the sun is beating down and all of a sudden a small cloud begins to form and then another and another and they join together and the rain begins to fall and it's as if the parched earth is satisfied. The Bible says the same thing happens in our soul when we're needing rest in a dry and weary land that there are blessings that God lets fall upon us. Not only these two things, but he adds a third. He says that Jesus is the returning Messiah. Verse 20, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. He's talking about Jesus coming back a second time, not this time to die upon a cross and rise again as our Savior, but this time as the victorious reigning king. He's the returning Messiah who will return with power from on high, and, and he will set right what is wrong in the world. And that leads us to number four in verse 21, that He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to, here's the word, restore everything. Now, notice those words, restore everything. There was an old Ford truck parked outside as I came in today. It had been restored, probably 1940s, maybe 1950s. And I could only imagine how much rust and how many dents and how decayed the engine may have been or all sorts of issues that had to be dealt with. And yet as it sat out there, it was just in beautiful, pristine condition. It had been restored. A master had taken the time and made the effort and had restored it. And the point is, and the language is that God takes all the world that has been affected by the fall. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but there's evidence everywhere for the fall of mankind in our life, in our community, in the world. But the Bible says, 
One of the things Jesus does is he sets all things right. He restores, and notice the next word, everything. Everything. Every mental struggle, every emotional struggle, every physical struggle, every spiritual struggle, every struggle in the physical world, every injustice, he he sets it right. And, And then he moves forward. Look at number five in verse 23. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. What's he talking about? Final judgment. He's saying there's coming a final judgment because Jesus is our final judge. And one day we're going to stand before him and give an account. And everything that has been wrong and every injustice done is going to be accounted for. And until that time, we live in the in-between time. We live in the days of salvation awaiting the final judgment. The days of the church and its ministry, the days when we wait, the days when we work, the days when the Spirit of God are working. Who is Jesus? What does Jesus do? Here's a final question that he asks. How do you respond to Jesus? It goes back to kind of what the first sermon ended with. What must we do to be saved? Well, there's lots of responses to Jesus. Uh, People here had lots of responses, and Peter, again, mingled them into his sermon as to how people had responded before. Some people, look at number one, had betrayed God. They betrayed the one that God sent. Verse 13, whom you delivered over, you handed him over to be killed. Some people betray Jesus. Other people deny Jesus. Look at verse 13. And denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. They denied Jesus. Some disowned Jesus, verse 14. Verse 15, you executed Jesus. You killed Jesus. You put Jesus upon the cross. Verse 15 is one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament because it says you killed the author of life. I mean, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? The author of life, he created life, but you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses. But do you know what's always been the right response? Look at verse 16 and verse 19. Verse 16 talks about repentance. Verse 19 talks about faith. Verse 16 tells us that we are to repent. That means we are going one direction and we turn around and we change directions. And the reason for the turnaround is we say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. And that's what repentance is. And, and before you're following after Christ, it may be, I'm living for myself according to the philosophy of life or the ways of life or the satisfactions in life that I'm pursuing. And you come to face to face with the realities of, hey, I'm living for the wrong thing. I'm living to please myself or living for my desires or living for what I want to do. And it's so unfulfilling. It's personally destructive and it's terribly painful. And all of a sudden you come face to face with Jesus and you're offered a completely different way of life. And you say, God, I'm wrong. You're right change of direction and I follow him. As a believer, repentance may be this way. I've gotten involved in something I shouldn't be involved in and I know there's a better way. I am a follower of Jesus. I'm headed in a wrong direction and you stop and you turn around and say, God, I'm sorry and I agree with you and there's a change of direction. 
but, but not only is there repentance, but, but look also and see faith. You, you see faith where it says to us in verse 16, and by his name, by faith in his name. Do you see how that's set off? It was almost like Peter said, hey, I want to emphasize this. By faith in his name, repentance and faith. And here's the amazing thing. Do you know the very first sermon that Jesus preached? It's recorded in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And the Bible records it and says that Jesus came preaching repentance and faith. Can I tell you what the Christian message has always been? Can I tell you what the Hebrew message has always been? Repentance and faith in God. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes this morning. As we close our time together today, I thought about what our various responses might be, could be, or should be. And of course, today, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, there's one very clear message, and it's about who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and following him in faith and obedience. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, if, if that's never occurred in your life, then the greatest and most important need of this moment is for you to hear the gospel, to hear Peter's gospel, and to receive Jesus Christ by faith. You say, how do I do that, Pastor? Well, the Bible says you simply pray and receive. And the heart's disposition is the most important thing in that prayer where you say, God, I know I'm a sinner and I believe Jesus is the Savior. I turn from my sin and I turn to Jesus and invite him into my life. Maybe today, right now, you're praying that prayer for the very first time in your life. The, the, the Bible says that that is the moment of salvation for the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And for every believer in the room right now, we go back to that moment of our salvation. For me, it was as a 10-year-old little boy when I repented of my sin in a church service just like this and asked Christ to come into my life. And for every believer, you go back to in that moment and you remember how great Jesus is, how important Jesus is, how Jesus is to be the focus. And maybe as a believer today, you'd just say, you know, Jesus isn't quite in focus like that, like I know he should be. You know, in this moment, you can help him get back in focus. You can help him be the apex, the zenith, the top, the most important, the highest, the best, the greatest. But it's letting Jesus be what God intends for Jesus to be, the one who saves. Whatever your need is, whatever you need to respond to today, we're going to stand and sing in just a moment. And as we stand and sing, I'm going to invite you to slip out and come if you need to. You can see me now. You can see me after the service. You can talk to one of the other pastors. But whatever that spiritual need is, I pray you'll respond to it. God, use these moments in our lives to help us see Jesus for who he is and what he does. It's in Jesus' matchless, marvelous, wonderful name we pray. Amen.